The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. So let me ask you a question. How many of you believe heaven is real because you saw a movie? Do you believe in heaven because you saw a movie? I believe heaven is real because the Bible says that it is. I don't need any more proof than that. I don't need anybody to tell me any more about it than what Scripture has to say about it. Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21. This is the eighth week in our study of heaven, and I hope that your interest has grown as we've looked at this wonderful place that God is preparing for us when we died to go to be with Him. And I've tried to keep us focused mostly about the person of heaven on the Lord Jesus Christ rather than the perks of that place. Uh, but at some point, we do have to stop and consider the beauty of it and things that are written in the Bible that do describe it. And we have that opportunity here in this 21st chapter of Revelation. And so, as I mentioned a moment ago, for the next few weeks, we're going to look at this scripture that God has given us. In the past few sermons, we've talked some about what our lives are going to be like when we get to heaven. And we looked at the fourth verse of this chapter in which John described life in heaven through a series of negatives. Uh, there are no tears. There is no death. There, there's no crying. There is no sorrow. There is no pain. And all of those things correspond to what makes life so miserable on this earth. And the scripture says that when we get to heaven, all of those things are going to be gone. Now, I didn't mention the eighth verse, which I think that I should, because there's a very powerful negative here as well. Conspicuously absent from heaven is going to be a certain class of people. And the truth is that heaven is a place of limited access, that there are some that are shut out, and we can see who they are in this verse. It says, but the fearful and the unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And I want you get to, to get to the truth of, of this verse that each of us in this room actually finds ourselves in that eighth verse. Somewhere in this list you'll find your name. Now far from holding ourselves up as paragons of virtue who deserve heaven, we actually find ourselves in this verse. And many people refuse to believe that, especially churchgoers refuse to believe it because they think church is a place for people that are holy. Church is a place for those to show how virtuous and holy they are. And so church is where good people go. And we don't want to believe that as good as we are, we might find ourselves right here in verse number 8, shut out of heaven. Whenever a preacher says, I will not preach on sin, I will not preach on judgment, I will not preach on hell, he's telling you that you are good enough to go to heaven just as you are. Now the truth is that this verse warns us, the scripture says, that all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God, all of us are on the way to hell, and none of us is good enough to go to heaven. If we were good enough, then Jesus didn't need to come and die for our sins. Now, we are on the list. And maybe you don't see yourself as a murderer or as an adulterer. 
And if I were to grant that none of you are, then we can't escape two categories that we find here, and that is idolatry. And all of us are liars. All of us are idolaters and we are liars. And you say, well, how is that possible? Well, it's because we idolize self. We're born with the religion of self. And that's the hardest part of who we are to overcome. And as surely as God commands that there is to be no other God before him, he also says we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. And we fail to do that. And that's because... We idolize self. We put self above everything else. We're also liars. Did you come to church to hear the preacher call you a liar? Are you offended at that? Well, I intend to offend you with it because I don't want to do anything different than what Jesus did. He was the most offensive preacher of all. Did you know that? He pointed out people's sins and he was the most offensive, and many times the Bible says that he offended people with his teachings. None of us lives lie, our lives without lies. I mean, before the day is over, all of us are going to be involved probably in some sort of a lie or another. We try to cover it up sometimes by saying, well, it's not really a lie. We just kind of shade the truth a little bit. Well, the Bible calls it a lie. I'm convinced that there are many church members that lie when they go out of the service. Some of them say, Pastor, that was a good sermon. And I look at them and I say, well, how would you know? I watched you sleep through the entire thing. So you must be lying to me. None of us are fit for heaven. And if this list was all that we knew about going to heaven, we would sit here in just in, in misery. All of us are ineligible for heaven because of our sin. So how can God say that those on this list are not going to be in heaven, and yet there are people that have done the things on this list, and they're in heaven. Abraham lied, and yet he's in heaven. David lied. David committed adultery, and David committed murder, and yet he is in heaven. At Jesus' trial, on the night of his trial, Peter lied three times denying that he knew the Lord. And yet, we think that Peter's the one who sits at the pearly gates punching passports for people to get in. So how could these men who committed all of these sins that are some of these sins that are on the list, how could they be there? Well, it's because each of them had faith in Christ. They believed that they would not be there except for the priceless payment that Christ made for their sins. And so they went to heaven and... They believed that Jesus paid it all, that all of their sins were paid for at the cross, and by faith in the blood of Christ, they are cleansed from their sins. And in his resurrection, he arose from the grave to take all of their sins away, all of their deadly sins away, and they're just waiting for Christ. Uh, our, our bodies, they're, they're in the tomb. Their bodies are in the tomb. They're waiting for the resurrection when uh, the body will come out and be, go to be taken to be with the Lord forever. Now, when the soul of a believer awakes in heaven, it's because of Christ. And when he arrives at those gates, he's not a murderer, he is not an idolater, he's not an adulterer, and that's because the blood of Christ covers sin. The blood of Christ takes our guilt away. And that's the way that you get into heaven, only by faith in him. So those that don't get into heaven are those that are still in unbelief. Now, do you see the beginning of the verse? The fearful and unbelieving will not enter. They're still guilty because 
They haven't repented of their sins. They've not been made perfect by the blood of Christ. Now, what would heaven be like if the people in verse number 8 were still that way and they were permitted to come into heaven? What would heaven be like? Well, everything we find in verse number 4 would be reversed. It would be better to be annihilated than to live in heaven with people that are still guilty of the sins that are in verse number 8. Now, thank God that verse number 4 describes what heaven will be, and verse number 8 is there to show us who will be gone. Nothing and no one involved in those sins or that causes what happens in verse number 4 are going to be in heaven. And verse number 27 makes that clearer. It says, And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. So, if I've offended you, I hope by reading these things that you'll feel a little bit better. In this discussion that we'll have about heaven, we find some of the most exquisite exquisite thoughts that a person could ever think. And that ought to brighten our hearts, make us glad for what Jesus did, and put a smile on our face. Even though everything that I say in this sermon, I can't promise you, will make you smile. Jesus had a lot of good things in his sermons, a lot of things that would make people happy. But also Jesus was, was, he just had a way of of wrenching away any hope for unbelievers. Now, if you'll look at chapter 21, beginning at verse number 9, we get a look at the capital city of heaven. This is the new Jerusalem. And as I spoke in other sermons, God is going to create a new earth. He will create a new universe. Both of those are within the boundaries of heaven. And likewise, this magnificent city is a part of heaven. It's not the entirety of it because it's limited by its dimensions. Heaven is an unlimited place. You can't measure heaven. But this city has length and breadth and height. It has a wall that surrounds it. It has gates that uh, allow people to enter into it. People go from the outside to the inside and back to the outside again. There's always two-way traffic going in and out of this city. Hopefully it's not too bad at rush hour, but people are going in and out of the city all of the time. And this city is designed to be the home of the Lamb's bride. Now, if you'll look at the second verse for just a moment. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And then in verse 9, And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. Who is the bride? Paul explains to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 11, Would to God ye would bear with me a little in my folly, And indeed, bear with me, for I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you a chaste virgin to Christ. Now there Paul is expressing the privilege of the Corinthian church. Paul told them that they are the bride of Christ, that the church of the Lord is his bride. He's the husband, she's the bridegroom. She is the church that he purchased with his own blood. And here he calls her a virgin because she's been made pure by her faith in Christ. Sin has been removed from her and now she is presented as being dressed in the robes of righteousness, the white, clean righteousness of Jesus Christ who is 
that is given to her because she is his bride. Now I want to talk to you for just a few minutes here about this relationship that Christ has with his church and it's equated to a marriage relationship, a relationship between a husband and a wife. Now I'd like you to turn to Ephesians chapter 5 if you would. And if you're prone to be offended by things, then maybe I'm going to offend you some more. Uh, You may get a little bit more upset by reading what Paul has to say in Ephesians 5. Marriage is emblematic of Christ's church. And I want to tell you that your marriage is very seriously important. Now today, I think it's somewhere around 50% of marriages end in divorce. And every divorce eats away at the picture of Christ's love for his church. Divorce is not as simple as saying, well, I just don't love him, I don't love her anymore, we just can't get along. Can you imagine that Christ would ever say that to his church? The marriage relationship is emblematic of the church-Christ relationship. Why do we call it holy matrimony? Well, it's not because it's a sacrament, but it's because it's sacrosanct. And that means it's not to be violated, it's sacred, it's not to be tampered with because it represents the relationship that Christ has with his church. Now, in in this chapter of Ephesians 5, Paul speaks of a relationship of a wife to her husband that she is to submit to him, which is exemplified in the Christ church relationship. Verse number 22, he writes, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands, as unto the Lord. Most people strike that verse out of the Bible. Wives, submit yourselves to your husband. He goes on, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord, the church. For we are members of his body and of his flesh and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. There are many, many preaching points that we can draw out of that particular passage, but I need to confine myself to this particular point that the church is the bride of Christ, that Christ loved the church and Christ gave himself for it, and the church is referred to as his body. As a husband and wife are joined together to be one flesh, so we are joined to be the body of Christ. And our union with Christ is a spiritual bond that can never be broken. And that's why divorce is so bad. One of the reasons it's so bad is because it, 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 it's like saying that the bond between Christ and his church can be broken. It, it destroys the picture. God doesn't want us to do that. And, and the church is, is Christ's peculiar possession, just like a man's wife is uniquely his. God gave the church to his son to be his bride. 
And that's what I want you to see about Revelation 21 verse 9, that the new Jerusalem is the home of the bride, that a place has been prepared for the bride, just like a husband prepares a new home for the, for the woman that he marries. And what we have here is just a beautiful picture. And because Christ loved the church so much, he wanted to give her the best possible place to live. Heaven is a place gorgeous beyond belief. The new earth is a, is a garden paradise for sure. But there is nothing that matches the beauty of this glorious city that belongs to the chosen bride of Christ. Now let me just pause here for a preaching point for a moment. If you profess to know Christ, you can't afford to ignore His church. What God wants you to do is to serve in His church. He wants you to be a part of a body of Christians and to be faithful to that body and to commit yourself to that church as a bride commits herself to her husband and to him alone. God wants you to commit yourself to His body. Now, do you see in the Scriptures what He's prepared for those who are part of that body? He made a special place for the church to live because the church is special to Him. And do you understand that even the greatest prophets of the, of the Old Testament do not have the privilege that you have? They were never a part of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said that John the Baptist was the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, and yet John never had the privilege of being a part of the church. Jesus called him a friend of the bridegroom. He didn't call him the bride. Now, in light of that, how could we be complacent about our church? I mean, how could we fail to come and to fellowship and to worship with the husband, the Lord Jesus Christ, and come together as his people in his body and be here on the Lord's day? You know, one of the saddest things that's happened in modern Christianity is the attitude that Christians have towards Sunday worship. We wonder, why isn't the church filled up with God's people? Why isn't Sunday worship the time when this building is just packed with people who know the Lord and they've come to worship Him in His body? Well, we don't do that because Sunday is inconvenient for us. Sunday ruins weekend plans. And so we have to figure a way to get around Sunday so that we can do what we want. And this is really what we talked about earlier. We're not honoring Christ, but we're idolizing self. We have to do what we want to do. We're not worshiping God. We're actually worshiping self. We take His time to worship ourselves. And so church has to be convenient to our schedule. And so what some churches have done, they've started church on Friday night. And that's so you can get church over with. And then you can have the rest of the weekend to yourself. Some have it on Saturday night. They say, come on Saturday. You don't have to go to church on Sunday. And then you can just have the whole day. May I remind you of what happened last week? Or what last week pictured? What happened on the resurrection day? Christ arose from the grave, didn't He? That was on a Sunday morning. He arose to set us free from sin and death. He was crucified for us. He gave His life for the church. And then He arose on the first day of the week. And what did Christians do because of the resurrection? They came together, they met together, they, they, they gathered on the first day of the week to praise God for that triumph in Christ. And so they gathered to honor Christ, the husband who gave his life for them. And so to worship on Sunday, that was to show their gratitude for that tremendous payment that he made, the great sacrificial love payment that he made and 
giving himself to take away our sins and then making the church his bride. So are you telling me then that a trip to the beach is more important than what Christ did on Sunday morning? Is visiting grandma more important? You know what I think is one of the most egregious acts that Christians do? I mean, this, this is the kind of thing that really bothers me. And that's when I hear somebody say, well, we stayed home from church today because we had company. We stayed home because we had company. Anybody that's friends with me knows that I have more allegiance to Christ than I do to them. And so if they want to see me on Sunday, they better come to church with me because that's where I'm going to be. And then they can see me on Sunday afternoon if they want, but they're going to have to get in the car and come again because I'm going to be at church on Sunday night. You want to see me? I've got more allegiance to Christ than I do to you. Why is there no death in heaven? Because Christ arose on Sunday morning. Why is there no pain and sorrow in heaven? Because Christ arose on Sunday morning. Why do we have a home in heaven? Because Christ won life on Sunday morning. Sunday is His day, and our convenience matters nothing at all. The day doesn't belong to us, it belongs to Him. And are we too stingy to give the Lord his day to give him what he asked? Do we have a right to steal away his time of worship? It's not ours to substitute Friday or Saturday or any day for church corporate worship because this is the New Testament example for us. Now it used to be, and you can look at the old confessions of faith to verify this, it used to be that Sunday was called the Christian Sabbath. That just means that it was a day of rest. Not, not a day of rest to lay on the couch, but a day to end, stop all of our activities and to turn our attention completely to the worship of the Lord. But most people don't consider it to be a Christian Sabbath anymore. And you'll even find that there are many good Bible teachers. They're great in other areas, but they come to this subject and they abandon the Christian Sabbath in order or in favor of Christian liberty. And they say, well, that's Old Testament law. You don't have to do that anymore because they took that special day uh, back in the Old Testament, but God doesn't require it anymore. But would I remind you that this is a Ten Commandment law? This is not part of the ceremonial law. God says, I've got a day that's reserved for me, a day to come and worship, and you give yourself to worship me on that day. And that's what the bride ought to do with her husband. She ought to honor him, to be there, to worship him on that day. And I suppose, you know, I, you know, I'm preaching to the choir right now. Not the literal choir, but I mean everybody that's here. Um, I'm preaching, you know, to people that are here on Sunday. But just remember this, when you go out, tell somebody else. I suppose that we'll get it through our heads when we get to heaven, that it's all about worshiping God. We'll understand worship better because every day is going to be Sunday in heaven. Every day will be to worship Him. And I just hope it's not too convenient for, inconvenient for you. Now, I want you to get this, that the church is the body of Christ, and the body needs to be together to fellowship on the Lord's day. Now, one other thing that might get you a little bit hotter under the collar. If you are a member of Berean, then Berean is where you should be on the Lord's day. This church, the church that you're a member of, should be the church that you're in on the Lord's day. There are some people who are members of our church who cannot hold a regular position in the church because they're just not here often enough. They've got other things to do, other places to be. And I've heard this excuse so many times. Well, when I'm away from here, I go to church on Sunday. I go to church somewhere. 
Well, well, okay. Um, ask your wife if it's okay if you just see another woman someday during the week. I mean, after all, you need companionship, don't you? So go see another woman. Or wives, go see another man. You know, you, you're not going to be happy about that. Neither is the Lord. He wants you to be in the body where you're supposed to be, giving your allegiance to that particular body that you have committed yourself to. Well, now that we're all mad, let's, let's just simmer down a little bit here and let's get happy about the new Jerusalem. Let, let's talk about this place that God has prepared for the Lamb's wife. Now, the church is the bride. Her home is the capital city of this vast empire of heaven. And so who, who could be more blessed than the people of the church whose city rules heaven. Christ gave the bride the best of the best. Now, if you would, let's turn to the book of Hebrews for a moment. In the 11th chapter of Hebrews, we read a great chapter about faith. The heroes of the faith are mentioned. And while you're turning there, I'll just mention to you that the author of Hebrews uses this entire letter to prove that Jesus is better than everything that he's better than the old Judaism that these Hebrews were in and they had come to Christ. He's better than all the things that they did, all the rituals that they did. He's better than the patriarchs and he's better than the Levitical priests. He's better than the angels. He's better than Abraham, better than Moses, better than Aaron. And in this 11th chapter, maybe you didn't think about this, that when you get to the 11th chapter, the author of Hebrews is also showing that Jesus is better than any hero of the faith. He stands above all. Now, one of the great Old Testament hero, uh, heroes was, was, was Abraham. He's the father of the Jewish nation. He believed God and he followed God. And in verses 8 through 10, we see Abraham's great hope. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed. And he went out not knowing whither he went, by faith he sojourned in the land of promise as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Now that 10th verse is very special. Abraham looked for a city whose builder and maker is God. Now, we ought not to think of Abraham like a Spanish conquistador who looked for the, a city, El Dorado, the city of gold. He wasn't looking for a mythical city. He wasn't looking for the lost city of Atlantis. Oh, he's looking for a city that's not built by man. He looked for a city that, whose architect was God. So his eyes are on the higher prize, not something built by man. He had his eyes on the heavenly, the place where God lives. And that's the city that we're reading about in our text, the New Jerusalem. And then the author of Hebrews goes on in the 12th chapter to speak of this heavenly city and tell us that it's better than anything that the world can offer. It's better because Jesus is there. And you need to grasp that, that the incentive for the Hebrews to turn away from their Jewish rites and their customs and all of their ceremonies was because Jesus is better. Jesus is better than all the ceremonies of Mount Zion. Mount Sinai. In chapter 12, verses 22 and 24, But ye are come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator 
of the new covenant. Now the magnificent description of Revelation 21 is about the home that God made for his church, the church of Jesus Christ, and this is how John saw it. This was the best of the best, and all that he could do was describe it through the eyes of sinful flesh. No one has written a book that gives a better description. No one has made a movie that gives a better description. Save your money. Don't buy the trash at the Christian bookstore with books that lunatics have written about heaven. Nobody has seen it. And that makes this description the very best. Nothing is better than this. Now this morning we're only going to, get, only going to start, just to start on what John saw. What is the new Jerusalem like? Well, in verse number 9, an angel approached John and said, Come up with me, and I'll show you the Lamb's wife. Now, uh, the new Jerusalem and the bride are spoken of in the same terms. The city is identified with her, and so to speak of one is to speak of the other. Now, it's difficult for me to resist making comments on everything that we read in the text. Uh, it takes me a long time to get through a series because of that. Uh, every word in Scripture is important. And sometimes I think that I'm derelict in duty if I just don't stop and tell you something that I think that will help you. And in this place, I can't pass up the angel's terminology. He said, I want to show you the Lamb's wife. And we wonder, why didn't he say, well, I want to show you the king's wife. Uh, uh, the king, he rules in his kingdom, and I want to show you his wife. But he doesn't say that. Surely Christ is a king. Back in chapter 19, you can't miss that. He's the king of his kingdom. But he doesn't say that. He said, I want to show you the lamb's wife. And the reason that he says this is because he never, the Bible never is going to let us turn loose of this description of Christ, that he is the lamb. I intend to deal with Revelation 4 and 5 later, but just turn there for just a minute if you would. Let's just peek at that for just a minute. Chapter 5 and verse number 6 in Revelation, where we see the Lamb. Revelation 5 and verse number 6. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a Lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. Verse 11. And I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders. And the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them Heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. No one in heaven is ever going to forget why they are there. They are there because the Lamb was slain and the Lamb will be worshipped forever. And he's called the Lamb because of that beautiful picture that we have in the book of Exodus when the people took the Passover lamb and they killed that lamb and they took its blood and they spread it over the door frames of their houses. And then when the death angel came on that night, God protected them because their blood, the blood of the lamb, was on the door. 
Now that lamb was killed. The blood became the protection from the death angel. And in the New Testament, we find that that was a picture of Christ, who is the Passover lamb. And that paschal blood was emblematic of the blood of Christ that shed at the cross, and that's what protects us from death and hell. And so for all of eternity, there's this constant reminder of what Christ did, that He is the great King, that He's the ruling monarch of heaven who sits on a glorious throne, but no one is going to forget that He is the Lamb. He's the Lamb that gave His life and sacrifice, whose blood was shed for our sins. And I think it's entirely possible that the nail holes in His hands and in His feet and this place where the spear pierced his side, and the imprint of the crown of thorns on his head will still be there throughout all eternity, so that when we look at him, we are reminded he is the Lamb who gave his life for us. I think that's worth stopping to mention. Well, we're at close to time to go, and I've just reached the first point of the sermon. So let's talk a few minutes about this. Uh, Let's talk about John's tour guide. We'll we'll, we'll just talk about this one thing, and that is angels. The the angels of the city. I know that you're interested in the people of the city. Uh, Perhaps you'd like to know about logistics, like to know about these figures that are given here, and uh, you'd like to know about the streets of the city, names of the neighborhoods and all those things, and I think we'll be fascinated when we get to that discussion. But at this point, I want to talk about others that are in heaven. Not just people. Who else is going to be in heaven? Well, God's going to be there. But the others are angels. And Hebrews says that there's so many of them, they can't be counted. Now, obviously, there's a finite number of angels. I mean, God created angels. He started creating them. At some point, he stopped creating them. So there is a finite number of them. Revelation 12 says that Satan tempted, induced one-third of all the angels to rebel against God. So if you're going to count one-third, and you're going to count two-thirds, and there has to be a limited, definite number of them. But they're said to be innumerable because it's just not worth our time to try to count them. It's like going out on a starry night, a clear starry night, and just looking at all the stars. There are so many angels. Well, angels are administrative helpers in the New Jerusalem have a special function related to us that changes somewhat from what it is now. Um, In this life, we are ranked lower than angels. We're ranked lower than angels, and that's because they're sinless. We aren't. An angel can worship in the presence of God. He can see the glory of God. He's holy, entirely holy. We can't do that. We're, We're not entirely sanctified. So we're lower in holiness than them. Hebrews chapter 2 says that we are made lower than the angels. And that just means that we can experience God's glory. Angels live in the presence of God's glory and they reflect that, that special majesty that God has created them for. But what that does not mean is that angels rule us and it does not mean that angels are objects of worship. It does not mean that angels are mediators between us and God. And so we don't pray to angels. Hebrews 1 4 says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be the heirs of salvation? And so, in service capacity, angels are beneath us. And that's because they minister to us. We can't see them because they're spirits, but they're here. 
In this room, there are angels that are all around us. And they're here for our protection. Because there are also evil angels that are in this room today. And God sends angels to protect us from them because they would destroy us at any moment. But I don't want to go much further with that because we're limited in our understanding of angels. And it's nonsense and it's harmful for us to try to delve into the world of angels and deal with angels on their level. We can't do that. But yet you have some churches that will tell you, well, it's possible for you to cast out Satan. It's possible for you to bind evil angels. That's all nonsense. Stay away from that kind of thing. Stay out of the world of angels. Leave that stuff up to God. But here's what Christ tells us about angels. In Matthew chapter 18, verse number 10, Jesus said, Take heed that you despise not one of these little ones, for I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. Now this verse, and another one or two that are like it, give rise to the teaching that every person has two guardian angels that watch over them. Parents will tell children at night, well, you can go to sleep, you don't have to worry, because your angels are watching you as you sleep. Now, in the context of Matthew chapter 10, Jesus was not speaking about babies, not little bitty children. He was talking about every person who is a child of God. That all of us have angels that watch over us. And, he, and the Bible doesn't say you have one. It doesn't say you have two. It doesn't tell us if you have a thousand. You may very well have more than a thousand. You know, when Elisha and his servant looked up, they looked into the hills, and they saw that God just opened up the, uh, the spiritual world to them, and they saw a host of angels, a mighty army of angels that were sent to protect them. Now, sometimes you might think the angels that protect you are asleep. You're always getting into all kinds of trouble. You're always making a mess of things. What happened to your angels? What are they doing? Are they asleep or something? Well, angels can't keep you out of sin, but angels can help you with some of the consequences of your sin, some bad decisions that you make that might otherwise seriously hurt you. Now, I have to admit this, that, you know, I speed a little bit from time to time, and I'm thankful that I have angels that help me speed safely. Uh... They're watching over me. A few weeks ago, I had a procedure at the hospital, and they had to sedate me. And uh, the hospital said, well, you can't go home unless you have somebody to drive you home. And I said, well, my, my wife is going to take me home. You know, I'm not like Jorge. I usually do all the driving. My wife doesn't make me sit in the back seat. And uh, I usually do all the driving, but quite honestly, I'm scared of her driving. But I knew that angels would get me home. So we made it home, okay. Angels are ministering spirits. They help us. But they don't have anything to do with our redemption. They have nothing to do with our salvation. They are a fringe benefit of our redemption. So it never, ne never at any time should you delve into the world of angels to try to deal with them, never to pray to them. They would as soon be cut off from God forever as to try to steal away some of God's glory. So whether you have one guardian angel or a thousand you don't want to be preoccupied with them. God uses them. He moves them about as he sees fit. And until you get to heaven, you just stay away from angels. Let God do what he does. Now, if you'll look at the first part of verse number 12, we read something, something else about angels. And he's, he's discussing the city, and we'll get to the other parts at another time. 
But it says, and it had a wall. The city had a wall that's great and high and had 12 gates and at the gates, 12 angels. So the city has walls, it has gates, and there are angels that stand at each of the gates. You ever wondered why the angels are there? Why, why are they there? You know, have you ever wondered why people say Peter sits at the pearly gates? Well, there are 12 of them. Which one's he sitting at? I hope you don't miss him as you go in. There's 12 of these gates and there's an angel at each one. Why are they there? Are they there to protect us? Well, we're talking about heaven. What is there to protect us from? Well, some say, no, the, these angels are ceremonial. And um, they're, they're sort of like the guards at Buckingham Palace. And maybe they have tall furry hats and red suits or red uniforms on and carry a gun that they never use because they're just mainly for show. So why do you need angels to guard the gates when there isn't anybody to keep out? Well, I think angels are there to give us a lasting impression. Now, to John, this would have meant something a lot here because he'd just been given a vision of other things that happened before this. And that was, uh, there was a great war in heaven. That's in chapter 12. A great war in heaven. And Michael and his angels fought against Satan and his angels and those evil angels were cast out. And now at this point, Satan is in hell with all those evil angels and they're not getting out. When a person goes to hell or a being goes to hell, he doesn't get out. They're kept there forever. So there is nobody to come and harm us. So I think that these angels are here to remind us of God's everlasting protection. He promised that this is going to be a safe place where nothing defiling will ever enter. There are angels there to remind us that God keeps His promise to keep us, to keep us safe. And so the angels are standing there displaying this great promise of the eternal security of believers in Christ. And isn't that a wonderful doctrine? We are kept safe. Heaven is a safe place forever. We never have to worry. So we go in and out of the gates and we can speak to those angels and say, thank you for your service. Thank you for your service. Thanks to God that He always keeps His promise of safety. Well, I'm going to stop here. I've got a lot more comments, some more comments to talk about safety, but I'm going to leave those for next time as we continue the tour. Now, a few weeks ago, when we began this series, I said that often we use hell as an evangelistic tool. I mean, we want to scare people. Maybe that's not our main purpose, but we use it as an evangelistic tool because we tell them how bad that hell is. And do you really want to die and go to hell and describe how awful that hell is? But then I also said we rarely tell people how wonderful that heaven is. That we don't use it as an evangelistic tool when well we should. These things are written to help us to understand who Jesus is and what he's promised to those who believe in him. The place that God's promised for believers. Now I hope that you can see that in using heaven as an evangelistic tool that we've talked about. I mean, we've, we've put evangelism in this sermon today. The gospel has been in this sermon because I've told you, you can't get there without Jesus Christ. And you get there because of the blood that he shed on the cross of Calvary. His blood covers your sins. You are washed in the blood of the Lamb. That's how you get into heaven. So it's an evangelistic sermon. And I hope that you remember that part. And I try to include that in every sermon that we talk about heaven, that nobody is going to get there without Jesus Christ. I hope you've learned that. And I hope that you, I hope that you receive Christ and, and understand the only way I can go to heaven is by my belief in Him.
So trust Him now. And one day, I promise you, if you do, you will awake in God's paradise of heaven. It's a wonderful place. And in these next few weeks, we'll talk about all the things that are in these verses that, that are just astounding what heaven is like. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, this time to look into your word and to start thinking about what a wonderful place that heaven is. Lord, we praise your name that you've made us a part of your church, that we have the opportunity to come and worship you here and to be faithful to you here and to commit ourselves to you so that we can have that wonderful place in heaven that you promised. The new Jerusalem is the home of the bride of Christ. And we thank you, Lord, that we could have a part of that. I ask, Lord, you'd speak to some soul today. Maybe there's someone here who hasn't yet committed their life to you. And I, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would open up their eyes of spiritual understanding, not only to see how bad that hell is, but to see how wonderful that heaven is, the place that God prepares for those who believe. Help us today, Lord. Speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A question in our forum class, and Randy over here asked me a question. He said, what's the difference between preaching and teaching? Well, you've seen a little bit of that this morning. I didn't mention this in the 10 o'clock hour, but preaching is a great opportunity for make, to make you mad. Just get you upset about things. And then hopefully to calm your soul a little bit by thinking of a little better thing. So preaching teaches us what we're doing wrong, corrects us in what we're doing wrong, and then leads us to the joy of what it is to serve Christ and the happiness that comes, the, the contentment that comes from doing what God has called us to do. So maybe preaching is different from teaching in that area. Uh, the exhortation that, that comes out of it. Well, I hope that some of the things I said today won't make you too mad. We just try to speak the truth. And uh, we all fall short of what we should do. Can we admit that? We fall short of what we should be. And we need to try harder to be what we should be, to be in fellowship with the Lord all the time. You know, the Bible says that God is going to reward us. And when, you know, I, I had a conversation with, with Jorge yesterday. We were talking about, um, he, he said, we were just kind of talking about, about uh, Christianity and what things that we should do. And he said, I wonder uh, what it's going to be like when we, when we rule with Christ in the kingdom when he comes. Do you really think that we're going to rule with him? And most certainly I do. But did you know that the rule... Uh, your responsibility of rule in the kingdom will be according to how trustworthy you have been with the things that God gives you now. If you're a good servant now, if you do what God tells you to do now, the Bible says he's going to give you greater responsibility in his kingdom. The amount that you rule over, and that's one of the questions uh, Jorge asked me, he said, do you think that we're going to rule over specific areas of the earth? And he said, which, which cities of the world do you want to rule over? And I said, I'll start with San Francisco. And, uh, and he said, yeah, we're going to clean that place out or something to that, to, to, to that effect. But yeah, your, 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 uh, your responsibilities in serving, serving God there are, are tied to what you do now in this life. You, what you do now in this life, you know, doing good things is not going to get you to heaven. That's by Christ's blood and righteousness. But service to him and the quality of your service to him here counts for what it's going to be like when you get into the millennial kingdom and the responsibilities that are given there. We need to know those things and think about them. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, 
please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.